Good harmonics there on that violin. That was awesome. Thank you, Ashley. And that joke is the first of many wonderful jokes that I'll be telling this morning, I promise. I'll keep them coming. Uh, and one thing that is not a joke is that I want to invite you, if you are able-bodied, to join me tomorrow night. We have to go back to Jenks. We have to go back to Egypt. <laughs> ah, we're getting better. Better jokes. We're going back to Egypt to empty out what remains of your stuff. So join me tomorrow night at 6 p.m. at Jenks Church of Christ on West Main Street. Here's what I'd like you to do. We have come up with a very creative, I want to attribute this to Pastor Paul, very creative name for a space right outside these doors. We're calling it the alcove. And that's where we put the info desk. And so here's what I'd like you to do. If you're able-bodied and tomorrow night you're willing to give up some time for the glory of Jesus, step out <laughs> there. Uh, I want you to sign up because uh, we want to bribe you with pizza. So if you meet us at 6 and you help us move some stuff, we will put pizza in your pizza hole. I promise. So please sign up. And I'm encouraged. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. We'll be done briefly because many hands make light work, and that's in here somewhere. <sighs> I wonder if part of the reason I'm telling so many jokes is because I dread preaching this text this morning. <clears throat> if there were a text that I feel like exposes me, if there were a text that I feel like there are so many things that need to be said that I know I'm not going to say them. This is that text. And it's this interplay between John's gospel and John's epistle. See, in John's gospel, we have this contrast between the shepherd and the hired hand, right? The shepherd is the one who takes care of the sheep, and the hired hand is the one who, as soon as trouble is anticipated, runs out, turns and runs to preserve himself from any trouble with the wolves. He's out of there. And Jesus contrasts the hired hand with the good shepherd, and he says, I'm that guy, and here's how you know, because I'm willing to lay down. Would you do me a favor, just for class participation, would everybody say those two words with me? Lay down. He's like, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm not going to run. I'm going to lay it down. No one's going to take it from me. Did you hear Jesus say that in the gospel this morning? Nobody takes my life from me. I'm laying it down. I have the power. Do you know it takes power to lay down your life? I've entitled this message this morning, The Fountainhead. A fountainhead is an archaic word, an older word that we don't use normally in our speech, but it speaks to that which is a source. It's the point of origin. It's where something comes from. Where does Jesus get the power to lay down his life? I would think it might have to do with being God the Son. <laughs> right? Has anybody besides, and this is where I say that, that, that the sermon's hard for me because I'm not really good at laying down my life. It's really hard for me because 
I work professionally full-time for 20-plus years serving the church. And this text, if you ever want to preach against a bad pastor, you got it this morning. John 10, you're a hireling. Oh, man. And, and let's, not, let's not miss the fact that in John's epistle, 1 John, the lectionary text doesn't really go back far enough. We go back a little bit further. There's contrast being drawn in John chapter 3, 1 John 3 as well. The contrast of Cain. And who is Cain's counterpart? Abel, right? And here you have this idea of the one who's taking. Cain is taking Abel's life. And Abel's losing his life. We would be remiss to not point you to Ezekiel 34. We're not going to read it today. It's an entire chapter given in the prophets to awful shepherds. Every pastor should read it, maybe calligraphy it out by hand and put it in the wall of their office. I think one of the things that is interesting here is this contrast between hired hands and the good shepherd, the contrast between Cain and Abel, the contrast between the taker and the giver, the contrast in Ezekiel between these evil shepherds and the one shepherd that God promises to send, who Jesus, of course, fulfills that. He owns that. He declares himself the answer to Ezekiel's prophecy in John chapter 10. This laying down is a term that's used in both of our texts this morning. Cain was the first to take a human life in our scriptures. And Jesus literally laid down his life. Now, it's probably safe to say that when John's epistle is being written, he's, he's writing literally about laying down your life. Like, he's talking about martyrdom. He's talking about the persecution that many would suggest the church was facing at the time, and that it's important for Christians to be willing to lay down their lives for one another. And of course, that immediately creates a gap because I don't think there are too many of us in the room this morning who are faced with actual physical death. Like in American culture, I Die For You is a, is a bad love song from Bon Jovi. It's not a, it's not a bad love song. It's pretty good. But <sighs> I graduated in 1989, so Bon Jovi gets a pass with me. But um, Right? The language of death is very foreign to us in that sense, like martyrdom or persecution. And How do we make sense of a text like this? Like, what, do, what do we do with John talking in that epistle? Uh, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. What I like about what John says is this opening phrase, we know love by this. I love that phrase because what it tells me is that the crucified Jesus is a fountainhead of knowledge. In other words, we're able to know this sort of love from the future, this sort of love that is not self-serving, that is not merely 
grounded in emotion or feeling or affection, something that's more complex and deeper and strange to us. How do we know that kind of love? And John says it so plainly. He says, we know love by this. He laid down his life. We come to know the divine and the holy love by the death of Jesus. If you want to just turn over with me to the fourth chapter in 1 John and look at the ninth and tenth verses there, he says God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And here's the phrase, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. His sacrifice, his laying down of his life, becomes a fountainhead. It becomes the source of knowing what lasting, true love from the age to come in the fullness of God's kingdom, this is what love is going to look like. God is that kind of love. Has anybody ever heard or said the phrase, God is love? Love is that slippery word, isn't it? Because what love means to one is not what love means to another. <laughs> I remember I, was, I, I grew up, did anybody grow up in like a really legalistic environment? Could you like let me know if I, they got one couple, really legalistic environment. I remember that uh, we had one of our church leaders had really discovered the word awesome. And he had decided maybe through intercession and fasting that the word awesome should only be used in the context of God. And so he became sort of the policeman for the word awesome. And I remember playing football with friends, and somebody made an awesome play, and we called it as such. And boy, did we get a sermonette on the field that day. And you don't use that word to talk about anything but God. <sighs> and I appreciate what he was trying to do. It was, now, anyway. But sometimes I feel that way about love. Like, I love tacos. Clearly, I love tacos. <laughs> I moved to Tulsa thinking I'm going to get a fresh start and lose weight. And there's barbecue and Tex-Mex on every corner. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I love my dog. I hated him at first, but now I love him. I love my wife and I love my kids. I love God. And the apostle says, this is how we know love. Now, I know, I, there are people here, plenty of people here who know Greek and know there are different Greek words for love. God embodies all of those words for love. Even the one, the eros one that we all get signed like, ooh, what's he going to say about that? All the desire that is in God is pure. So even his desiring love is pure love. His jealous love is pure love. And that love that we are reading about this morning, I hope I can say this. This is why I didn't want to preach this sermon, because it's just I feel like I'm not going to say it clear enough. That love is expressed in obedience, 
not really hugs. The love's expressed in obedience, not so much friendliness. You see, Philippians 2 reveals that love very specifically. It describes this, what they, they call kenosis, this self-giving, this outpouring of God's self that leads to death on a cross. Right? That's what Paul says. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, and all of this story of Jesus going to the cross is being done by a human being. I mean, we celebrate the fact that God became flesh and he dwelt among us. This means that humans have this potential to live into that sort of love. Because of the incarnation, it leads us to think that somehow we're hitting on the meaning of life. Somehow we're hitting on the meaning of what it means to be really human. And what it means to be really human is not to try to save your life, but to be willing to lay down your life. But I think this sacrifice is not only a fountainhead of knowledge, I think it's a fountainhead of power, of ability, of energy, because the life of Jesus is not just a model. It's not just a template. You see, when I start to think about, and this is, this is the thing, there are sermons, <laughs> if you've ever preached, there are sermons that you'll preach, and you're a hypocrite, and you have no idea you're a hypocrite. <laughs> you'll preach the sermon, and you're just oblivious to how much you don't get it. And then there are sermons like this, there are texts like this, where you start reading the text and you're like, oh, man, I have not done any of this. I am not good at this. I have nothing to say. Oh, look at my life. I'm the master of finagling to get my own way. That's what I'm the master of. <laughs> I'm not someone who's experienced and great at laying down my life. And honestly, I just often think to myself, how in the world could I do this? How in the world can I look at John, 1 John 3, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. I don't like to deny myself for my own good. I don't. Hard for me to deny myself for my family's good. You may want run me out of town after I preach this sermon. This is why I didn't want to preach this sermon. And the apostle saying, you know what? You really ought to lay down your life for one another. And the question is, how in the world do I do that? If Christ's life is only a model, I'm immediately indicted. <laughs> if Christ's life is merely an example that now I'm required to emulate Jesus, thanks a lot. I thought I was a loser. Now I know I'm a loser. I cannot do this, right? But what if Jesus laying down of his life is more than just inspiring. It's more than just an example. What if Jesus' act of laying down his life in and of itself is a fountainhead, a source of power for me to do it? 
What if Jesus going to the cross is not only for my salvation, if we will, not only for my being rectified and being set right with God, but what if Jesus' act of going to the cross actually gives me power to do that same thing myself? My hope is that none of us are faced with the awful, overwhelming, I don't even know how to talk about martyrdom. I was in India in 2007, and in the missionary's home, there was a young man who was working and mopping floors and cleaning up and washing walls and doing very menial sort of tasks, and that guy was singing the whole time. He was whistling the whole time. And every time he caught your eyes, he had the most beautiful, radiant smile on a face that was covered with scars. And I noticed that he carried the pail awkwardly because his left arm was missing right around the elbow. And so I asked the missionary, I said, tell me about this guy who's working at the house. He said, oh, he's such a wonderful guy, filled with the joy of the Lord. I said, yeah, I noticed that, but what's his story? He said, well, he was raised in a, a Hindi family, and he came to one of the meetings, and he heard the gospel, and he uh, surrendered to Jesus Christ and went through the waters of baptism. And when he went home, his mother threw acid on him and chopped off his arm. And in the presence of that man for the rest of the week, I felt like a stooge because I struggle to muster up joy. And so whenever I have to talk about things like laying down my life, I think of this young man and I think, I'm not qualified to talk about this. But I don't think this gets us off the hook just because we live in a country where thankfully we don't live with the threat, the conscious, like, oh, I might get killed for my faith, or somebody might chop off my arm, or what have you. I might be jailed. We don't live with that threat, but I don't think it gets us off the hook for the laying down our lives. That's just my thought, is, is I, I feel like there's something universal about this, because Jesus says, right, in Matthew, when he's talking in the 10th chapter, 38 and 39, he says, if anybody's going to be my disciple, what do you have to do? You have to deny yourself and take up your cross. And that's kind of like anybody, right, in my mind. Like, I just don't know how we say, well, that was for those people only. Like, I don't know how we make sort of literary moves and rhetorical moves to get ourselves out of that. So the question is, we ought to do this. How do we do it? I mean, maybe one of the, the ways we can start with this is start to ask ourselves questions about the sorts of relationships that we have with other believers. In my experience, building relationships with other believers, serving other believers, as Bishop Ed preached so beautifully two Sundays ago, that's a, a great place to start laying down our lives. We were at somebody's house for dinner this week from the church, and I, two working adults, house full of kids, right? And they invited us over for dinner. It's wonderful. Tacos. Yes. And I said, but we realize that in order to pull that night off, somebody somewhere had to deny themselves. 
Come to find out, the person who prepared the meal was up at 5.30 in the morning preparing the food. These sorts of things don't just happen. They don't just like, without any sort of loss. In that case, it was loss of sleep or loss of money or loss of convenience or loss of what, the way I think my day should play out. Communities don't just happen, just in the same way that buildings don't just happen. And the fact is, uh, there's a real risk when you try to build communities. There's real risk when you try to build relationships because people can be jerks. People can be rude. Has any, right, we've met rude people. People can be ungrateful. People can be insensitive. People can be hypocrites. They can be critical. They can be nice to your face and stab you in the back. Can I keep going? Has anybody here ever been wounded or hurt by another human being? Isn't, uh, wouldn't life just be easier with no people sometimes? Church would. And, and please hear me. Can I be really plain about this? I, I, this needs to be said. I'm not assuming... I'm not advocating for recklessness. I'm not saying there's not a place for discernment. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise. I'm not saying any of those things. But neither should we be so caught up in our own safety and self-preservation that we don't take risks. How do we as Christians lay down our lives? Maybe it's just taking relational risks. You see, Scripture, I think, is pretty clear that in order to be a follower of Jesus, we have to enter what is a cruciform life. That hymn of praise to Jesus in Philippians 2, about even though he was God, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, that beautiful hymn, it starts off with this introductory phrase, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I'm wondering <laughs> that we, if we can't find not just inspiration, but the actual personal energy, the personal strength to enter into this sort of living. It's not going to happen today. I'm not going to call everybody up and lay hands on them and knock you on the ground and give you this energy. It's not going not to do that. We have to enter into the life of Jesus. And this is a theme that we don't talk about a whole lot. But here's where I'm just sort of, I'm just trying to bump into this. It's not about believing Jesus rose from the dead, per se. That's important. We believe that. And everybody said, Amen. Oh, that was not really good at all. I'm sorry, even for a Methodist or something. We all believe he rose from the dead. Amen. Much better, thank you. I feel better. Um, <laughs> but the Christian life is not so much one of right beliefs, as, as important as they may be. The Christian life is about union with God about being conformed to the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father. The Christian life is about entering into the dance of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to be pulled into that life in such a way that it's not as if God is separate from us as something or someone we believe in as much as God is one 
that is our life. This is very, very important. As a matter of fact, Paul, when he's talking to the Colossian Christians, what does he say? When Christ, who is your life, is revealed. I preached a message years ago called A Side of God. And I meant it like a side of coleslaw. A side of french fries. For so many of us, God is a part of our life. He isn't our life. God is something that we opt for, like the baked potato because it's healthier. Or if we're really feeling healthy, the fresh vegetable medley. That's not what God is for us. He is our life. Paul, quoting the Greek poet, says what? In him we live and move and have our being. He is not being as much as being is in him. This is what we're sort of getting at this morning, and that is if God is going to be the source, the fountainhead for this sort of love, this sort of life to appear in us, we have to be joined to him. We have to be enveloped in him. We have to be caught up in him. I mean, have we not, for anybody who spent any length of time in church, there's this huge gap that exists, right, between the talk we talk and the walk we walk. We, so many times we know all the right things to say, but it's really hard to embody that. It's really hard to live that out. And I think it's because of this gap. That God has called us to be united with him, to just have our life completely caught up in his life, and we still have him as a side dish. This union with Christ is when Christ is now able to be the fountainhead for living. We're not talking about agreeing with uh, orthodox theology. We're not talking about trying harder. Please. Who's lived through that sort of torture with me? You have like, and this is the season, right? Right after Easter, everybody's like really charged up, like I'm going to be the best Christian ever. And it doesn't take but a couple hours. I was going to say days and I caught myself. It doesn't take but a couple hours because trying has never really worked. This is about being joined to Christ in very pervasive, invasive ways. So examples that we know studying the scriptures, but how do we study the scriptures? Are we looking to accumulate theological knowledge? Are we looking for him? Do we approach the scriptures dependent on the the spirit and what the church has been saying about the scriptures? Or do we approach the scriptures, you know, like basically a Christian fortune cookie? Sitting with the Lord in prayer. Silence and solitude. Five minutes. That's, uh, I've done this exercise with many groups of people. Sit for five minutes in silence. That's a tough one. But what do the prophets tell us about the voice of God? It's not always coming in the thunder. It's coming in the whisper. And if we don't sit with him, how will we ever be joined to him? Looking for Jesus in the least of these. Whether they're children in the kids' ministries, whether it's people that we're, we're serving at some place like John 3.16, whatever sort of ways that we connect with the least of these, what did Dr. Green teach us just the last time he was here? 
The poor are not less than us. The poor are a gift. Their dignity because it's in them that we see Jesus much more clearly than in the rich. Coming to the table of the Lord as we will in a few moments and feasting on him, not just with him. Oh boy, this is a hard saying. But think about this, John 6, verse 56. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, what does it say? Abide in me and I in them. Do, you want, do, do, do we wonder why the church has done this every Sunday for almost 2,000 years? This is one of the primary ways that we are joined to Christ. Gregory the Great, who's a tremendous voice among the church fathers, says this, The good shepherd has laid down his life for his sheep in order to change his body and blood into sacrament for us. But look at this. And to satisfy the sheep he had redeemed with his own body as food. The way of contempt for death that we are to follow has been shown us, I love this phrase, the mold that is to form us is there. The mold that is to form us is where? It's at the table. Here's what I'm thinking. The life that we all want to live is available to us if we want it. And it's not a life of getting more, not a life of doing more. It's not even a life of being better. The life that we really want is full and abundant, and it's found in our union with Christ. It's when he becomes, really becomes the fountainhead, the source of our imagination, the source of our character, the source of our energy to live becomes Christ. He's not an addition. It's not like we went back to school and got a graduate degree in God. At the table, we are not only satisfied, we are formed by the Spirit. We're shaped into fully human women and men. But that form, that human form is cruciform. This way of being human is increasingly dependent on Jesus and consequently, what happens is we get freed from fear. There's a real fear that if we lay down our lives, it's not going to get picked up again. There's a real fear that the wounds we've experienced in the past are going to come back again. There's a real fear that the pain that we experience in the cross is going to have the last word, as Pastor Paul was saying last Sunday. This is Eastertide, and Eastertide is the time where I think at the very least we should remind ourselves we can take risks in God because as painful as the risks may be, those painful moments will never be final moments. Those painful moments will never have the last word. This, the, the resurrection does not ne ne take away the pain of the cross. The resurrection doesn't say that the cruciform life is like this, uh, like you're living your life on uh, morphine. No, the, the, the resurrection says 
we can be free to endure the pain because we're not afraid of the pain. We're not afraid of the consequences because that pain and those consequences, they're never going to get the last word on us again. If death can be overcome, certainly cranky people can be overcome. Let's not make it a joke. Let's make it real serious. If death can be overcome, so can betrayal. If death can be overcome, so can criticism, unfaithfulness, disloyalty, slander. All of those things can be overcome. Do they hurt? Yes, they hurt. We've all experienced them. And the fact is, the only way we can avoid them altogether for the rest of our lives is to isolate and insulate ourselves. But that's not laying down our lives. That's trying to save them. And in the end, the person who does that, you don't save your life, you lose it. The fact is, we cannot separate the cross from resurrection. Jürgen Moltmann, who's crucified God, is sort of like the book to read on this. He has this great idea. He says, we cannot speak in terms of death and resurrection like they're two separate ideas. Like, there's the death of Jesus, and uh, uh, oh, and there's the resurrection of Jesus. He says, no, 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 no. The two go together. They're inseparable realities. It's sort of like talking about the cross of the risen Christ and the resurrection of the crucified Christ. You hear that phrase? Listen, it's the cross of the risen Christ. So when we talk about the cross, we're talking about it in the context of resurrection, but then we talk about the resurrection of the crucified Christ because we don't want to talk about resurrection without talking about the cross. That's why Protestants are afraid of crucifixes. I'm just being humorous because I've got so many stories and we've got to go home. Here's where I got messed up, and this is where we close. 1 John 3.17 How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? Ooh. This is where I feel very convicted. And because I don't feel like it's so much I refuse to help directly as much as I try to avoid being in situations where I'll be inconvenienced. I think like this verse doesn't really give us much wiggle room. Sort of takes away all our stuff and says it's not really your stuff. It's not really your time. It's not really your money. And that makes me very uncomfortable. How do we respond to the ought of the gospel? This is what you ought to do. That's a very off-putting word to a lot of people. It's imposing. It's obligatory. It doesn't feel genuine. It feels like I'm just doing something because I ought to do it, not because I want to. I think there are really two ways of hearing the oughts of the gospel, because this isn't the only place it exists. The first one is we hear the ought as an imposition, as law. And on some level, I think it exposes the carnality that's in our hearts, right? Remember, Paul also says to the Colossians, put to death that which is earthly in you. I think when we hear the ought, 
if we get this sort of negative feeling like, why is he telling me, bossing me around? It's that carnality in our hearts that's kind of creeping up and like, no, 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 no. But there's another way to hear the ought, right? It doesn't have to be that way. The ought could be grace, not just law. It could be invitation, not just imposition. It could be a peek into what your life could be. In other words, if I buy a new car, it ought to run for a whole bunch of years. I look forward to those years, right? When he's saying, so you too also ought to lay down your life. It's about the life of the Spirit that's in us and participating in life from the future. We want to hear this this morning as an invitation, as a description, as a call to live life very differently. And if I meandered, I apologize. There's so much here These are the biggest, biggest sort of strokes that you could paint with. Why do we do what we do? Where do we get the energy and the the inspiration to do what we do? How do we sustain this sort of life? And at the end, if all I could say is keep pressing into Jesus, be unified with Jesus, let him define you, let him envelop you, let him surround you. When you open up a Bible, it's about him. When you sit down to pray, it's about him. When you're serving other people, it's about him. We never lose sight of him. He is where true life is. He is where reality is. And it's a life of freedom. It's a life of joy. It's a life of peace. But it's not a life of ease. It's not a life that's free of risk. It's not a life that's safe. Every single person in this room has been burned, has been hurt by people. And while we may may never face martyrdom in the physical sense, we may face it relationally. We may face it socially. We may face it psychologically. And friends, I have to find strength in the cross of Jesus. That if Jesus has the power to lay down his life as I press into him, as I'm pulled and caught up into him by the Spirit, that same power can be mine. It's interesting. There's no reason for us to believe that the verses and chapters in the, uh, in the Bible are inspired in any way. But isn't it interesting? 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that God laid down his life for us, and so we too ought to lay down our lives for one another. And John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Could it be, just as a matter of fun coincidence, but just for our thought process today, that John 3.16 makes 1 John 3.16 possible? Could it be that the love of God that resulted in the sending of the Son, the dying of the Son, makes it possible that we ourselves could do the very same thing for one another. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we come to you in the name of Jesus, in whom all things consist. 
And Lord, the first thing I want to, to say is have mercy on us. Have mercy on us in our independence. Have mercy on us in our struggles to preserve ourselves. Have mercy on us. And Father, I'm asking that you would send your Holy Spirit into this room. We know that you're here, but we also know there are times where we can experience you in unique ways. And we ask that there be this, even right now, this fresh sense of your Spirit inviting us, calling us, wooing us, drawing us to this cross where we see more than pain, we see more than suffering, we see more than betrayal, we see love. And I pray this morning that our hearts would be pulled into the life of Jesus. God, forgive us if we have treated you as a side dish, if we have treated you as an option that we've added on to make our life better. Forgive us for that. You demand allegiance, you call for loyalty, you're the king of kings, the king of heaven, all wise, immortal. I pray, O oh God, that your Holy Spirit would not just hover over our hearts now, but stay with us throughout the day and the week and keep calling us back to this question. Is Jesus really the fountainhead? Is Jesus really the source? Are we living out of his life? May it be true for the good of our neighbor, and for the glory of your name. Amen.